Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Stephanie Vicari, one of the developers at ThoughtBot, and I'm joined today by Brittany Martin. Brittany, you are the host of the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 network, the lead developer for the Pittsburgh Cultural Trust, and part of a roller derby team. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm super honored to be here. Thanks, Steph. Absolutely. So I'd love to ask, what's it like being part of a roller derby team? I have very little exposure to roller derby as a sport, so I'm really fascinated to hear more about it. That's a great question and one that I get a lot. A lot of people will approach me and ask me if it's wrestling on skates. (laughs) And in some ways, it can be, but it's really modernized as a sport. My sister's been a referee for 10 years, and she encouraged me to try out a practice. So I went And the first drill was literally falling on skates and being able to get up quickly. And, you know, I fell for the ploy. They told me that I was an expert at falling and that I had a (laughs) real talent for it. And so, you know, me being naive, totally sucked that up and said, you know what, I'm going to come back. And I've been a part of the roller derby community ever since then. So I am the president of my roller derby league. And what roller derby involves is really a lot of, it's a mental game and it's a physical game. And it basically involves four players are out on the track and their job is to block another player from going around and making as many circles as possible. So it's a lot of fun. I love the camaraderie. And my favorite part about roller derby is the confidence that it gives you. Very cool. So are you one of the individuals where you're blocking someone that's trying to score points and go around? Or are you that person that's trying to get around? You know what? I am a multifaceted player, so I can be one or the other. My favorite position is actually there's something called a pivot. And what that means is that you wear a stripe on your helmet and you're a blocker. But if the jammer, the one who has the star on their helmet, gets into trouble and needs help, they can actually take the star off their helmet, give it to the pivot, and then the pivot becomes the jammer. I like that because just as like a personality type, I like to help people. And so like if it's a... It's a rough situation and someone really needs like a break. Like I like to be that person, be like, not to worry, I can save the day. So it's been um, really interesting for me because I didn't play a ton of sports as a kid. I don't know if you did, but it's been an entirely different adventure for me to play a sport as an adult. It's a totally different mindset. Did you play sports as a kid? Not much. I played a little bit of basketball and a little bit of volleyball. Uh, I had a lot of fun. I kind of wish I had followed through and played more of it because I enjoyed it so much. But then I let myself become involved in some other activities. So I could totally understand how it would be fun to still get back into it and do it now. I play with a group of people who are actually software developers as well. And so we all have software developer stickers on our helmets, which is great. I have a merge conflict on my helmet. I have a JSON sticker with an actual picture of Friday the 13th Jason. That's amazing. And it's great because it's a, it's a great conversation piece because when I'm playing, people will be like, oh my God, I actually understand your stickers. And then I know that they're one of my people. That's super cool. I love that. Well, pivoting just a little bit, uh, last time you and I chatted, which was on the Ruby on Rails podcast when you had me on as a guest, you had hinted at something exciting, but you couldn't yet talk about it. Are we to a place we're ready to talk about it? Absolutely. So I'm really thrilled to be able to say that I was chosen to be a speaker at RubyConf. 
I've never had the opportunity to attend RubyConf before, and I was recording an episode of the Ruby on Rails podcast with my co-host, and we started talking about um, work culture and moving between different jobs, and we got really into the weeds about a specific topic, and towards the end of it, he said, you know what, you should really submit that as a talk. I think you have some interesting ideas around it, and I was like, hmm you know, what What the hey, I'll do it. And it got accepted. So pretty exciting. Uh, RubyConf is taking place in November in Nashville. So I'm very excited about that. And I'm excited to, to debut this talk. Yeah, that's very exciting. I think the name of your talk is Hire Me, I'm Excellent at Quitting. Yes, that is correct. Uh, my boss was not that thrilled when I revealed <laughs> the talk name to him. But uh, the idea of the talk comes from years of experience of either doing freelancing or working on open source projects, regular jobs. You know, I had uh, a series of marketing jobs before I became a developer. And I just learned that there is a real finesse in knowing when to quit a job and then really how to execute leaving that job well. And so um, I'm happy to share some spoilers from my talk as I am putting it together. Oh, that would be awesome. Because I was going to say, I know you can't give away too much about it since we're ahead of the date of when you're going to be speaking. But yeah, that'd be fun. Anything that you can share that's not going to go too much into it. That is interesting. I love that perspective of always thinking through like when you're going to leave a team, because as consultants here at ThoughtBot, that's something that we're thinking about from day one, just because we know that we're joining a team temporarily and we're going to move on. So that that certainly resonates with me, that perspective of the world. Oh, great. Uh, And you had mentioned that this is your first time at RubyConf. Is this your first conference talk? It's not. I've done talks at RailsConf before. I actually went to RubyConf Malaysia last year, which was an incredible trip. I made the mistake of going to Malaysia for two days. So it took me two days to fly out there. I was in Malaysia for two days, and then it took me two days to come back. I really wish I could have spent more time out there, but because of work, I needed to come back. I've been speaking in the conference circuit for about three years. It definitely took me some time to feel comfortable enough to start speaking. And, you know, advice to listeners Definitely get out there to your local meetup groups, give talks at your at your own work and just really get comfortable with it because everybody has great ideas and concepts that need to be shared out. Is that how you built confidence? You went to local meetups and spoke there and also pitching talks to your colleagues? Definitely. One of the scariest talks that I've ever done is we use a third-party API at work called Tessatora, and there is a yearly conference where about 2,000 people come together. They have this innovative series called TN Inspire, where you get up on stage, you have five minutes to give a conference talk. Every 20 seconds, the slide automatically transfers to the next slide. So you need to have everything memorized and you have to be on pace. And so I gave a talk two years ago at TN Inspire, uh, ways that roller derby can be similar to onboarding an employee into your workplace. And so I think after doing that talk, I felt much more confident about doing more technical talks. Oh, yeah. You went for just like the high stress, quick way to dive in. So then once you accomplish that, you're like, ah, everything else seems pretty easy from here. Absolutely. I felt like I blacked out on stage. When I stepped back off, I just like couldn't believe it. It was the most incredible high. And I always have to remind myself that I can get so nervous before a talk, but 
when you're stepping off stage and when you have people come up to you and introduce themselves to you and they let you know how inspired they were by what you spoke about, it makes everything worth it. I've had similar experiences. I haven't given any conference talks, but the few times that I've given a talk, I have that incredible nervousness right before. But then once I give the talk and I get through it, I have that same high and just appreciation of the fact that it's over and that I did it, that then as soon as I'm done, I want to get back up there and do it again. So it's that cycle that helps me keep going is I know at the end of the nerves, there's going to be a rewarding feeling that comes with it. Absolutely. And I I personally feel that you would be an amazing conference speaker. So I hope to see you on the circuit soon. Oh, well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. How is it going preparing your talk? Uh, You'd mentioned you could give us a few spoilers. Is that okay? Absolutely. I have three spoilers that I'd love to share. So the first one I'd love to discuss is accepting when it's time to move on. And I think this is a difficult concept for a lot of people because you have a friend circuit within work. Some people are adverse to change. But really, I feel on a monthly basis, you need to sit down and look at the work that you're doing. Are you being challenged? Are you excited about the moves that your company's making? So a good example is if your company announces like a big new project that they're going to take on or a new partnership, how do you feel inside? Are you genuinely excited about that for your company or is it just monotonous to you? Once you understand that, then it's time to start contemplating possibly leaving the company. Have you ever felt that way before? Have you ever felt like... You didn't want to leave, but it really was truly time to go. I have. I felt that with two different companies. Both of them I really enjoyed being with. One of them was more out of my control because we had layoffs. So that one is always just kind of a tough emotional experience to go through. So that one was hard leaving but really wasn't in my control to decide what to do. But then another job when I was working with them and they had layoffs and I was not in the group that was laid off, but we had some changes in the structure of the team and which location I was going to be working out of and which team I was going to be working with and the things that were going to challenge me. And I had that same conversation with myself where I realized that I didn't think I was going to be challenged and I was worried about what lied ahead for me. And that's when I had that honest conversation of thinking that it was time for me to move on. I worked at a startup where the fundraising eventually fell through. And so they sat us down and said, hey, we're going to have to completely restructure the company. We're going to have to do rounds of layoffs. If you truly believe in the mission of this company, then we encourage you to stay. But we want you to have a conversation with yourself. Is this where you want to see yourself in five years? Do you really want to start over and rebuild this company? And I at that point admitted to myself, no, this is not what I want to be doing. And so it was it was a nice, clean exit out. Wow. I appreciate that honesty from the leadership. Yeah. To be able to encourage. Yeah. To encourage everyone to have that honest conversation and then decide what is best for them. Absolutely. Now, moving on to my second tip, when you do decide that you need to quit, be absolutely ready ready that it's going to be uncomfortable. You will wreck your manager's day. And I've always in the past, I've had trouble with that because I tend to really like my managers. I tend to have a very personal relationship with them. And it is the most awful feeling knowing that you're walking into their office, closing the door and letting them know that you're quitting. There's not anything that you can do to make that easier on them at that moment. Just understand that they're they're going to react negatively to it. If they react positively, then something else might be going on. But you have to understand that your manager's job is to make sure that they have someone underneath them that's working efficiently in that role. And if that's no longer going to be the case, then that's going to be a lot of added work onto them to help bring in a new person into that role. But just know at that minute, you know, it's going to be emotional, 
But if you truly decide that you want to leave and you've found a great new opportunity, then you're going to have to suck it up and really just deal with it. Interesting. Yeah, that's probably one of the things that weighs on me the most if I'm leaving a job is I'm worried that I am adding more work and stress to everyone else that I'm leaving. And that's hard for me. Do you have any tips on ways to make that better or how to have that conversation with your manager? Even though we've moved into a digital age where someone can just send an email or just even just walk into a room, give them a call and say, hey, I'm leaving. I still believe in the formal letter. I believe that you should outline everything that you've been doing and everything that you feel that the next role should hire for. I'm a strong believer that even though you're leaving, I think you should be part of hiring the new person and even having a truthful conversation about whether or not your role should be broken into two people. If you're out of place for a long time, it's very likely that you're going to take on roles and tasks that may not make sense for your position. And so really sitting down and almost rewriting your job description out with your manager, I think can help alleviate a lot of stress and might even reveal things that you didn't enjoy as a person that can be onboarded to someone who actually would enjoy doing those tasks. That's a great idea. I really appreciate the amount of empathy that you have for those that will hire once you're gone. So my last tip and something I hinted with the second tip is to document your job. So you want to sit down and basically create a comprehensive guide of everything that you do. Now, as developers, we're very much encouraged to do that in our readmes and to create setup scripts to make that easy. But there are a lot of things as developers that we don't do that's within the code. So this might be meeting obligations, how you handle support requests, how you externally communicate new features, how you like to work with your boss, how you like to work with your coworkers, your pairing preferences, things like that. And so I am a big fan of before you leave, you create this big document that explains everything that you do. You provide that to your manager and your coworkers and have them read through it and see if they have any questions. That being said, that is just a document. After you leave, I'm a big fan of making it clear that coworkers can still continue to reach out to you for a specific length of time, just because there's definitely domain knowledge that is going to be held within your mind. And so you want to make sure that those people are able to continue on with their lives and are not completely stuck in the mud should they not know how to do something. Yeah, I love that idea of reviewing what you think is important, the contributions you bring to the team, some of the things they'll look for in the next person. I love having that chat with the team so everyone just feels comfortable with the transition of someone leaving. I am intrigued about the idea of being able to be contacted to help with something because it feels like one of those areas that if it could just be like an email or two, something simple, it's no big deal. Have you ever stayed on as someone that could be a contractor where they could use you for five, 10 hours a week? I have done that. And I've recently, I've been in that situation where it was the other side where I was the coworker who was dealing with an employee who left and became a contractor. And that was an interesting situation just because the application that I was taking over wasn't working when I got it. It was in the middle of an upgrade from Rails 2 to 4. And then we were bringing it up to rail six, but uh, that was an interesting situation just because that developer had all the domain knowledge and I, but I had to be thoughtful about how much time I was taking since they were only contracted for a certain amount of hours. Now I imagine that happens with ThoughtBot because you guys leave a project and then they want to continue to answer questions. So how do you deal with that? 
It depends based on the project. So I know sometimes we will stay in contact. It may not be the full team because we have rolled off and moved on to other projects that we need to give 100% to. But if there's someone that was managing the success of that project, they could still be contacted to answer any last minute questions. We also try to communicate early on when we're coming to the end of our tenure with that team. So if it's two weeks out, one week out, we'll start telling the team, hey, we're rolling off. What questions can we ask? Who can we pair? with, what tickets should we work on? So we're working hard to make sure that our last day feels like a very smooth transition that everyone knows is coming. And I think that helps a lot in knowing that we won't be accessible afterwards, but we feel like we've done our best and everyone feels prepared for that. But there is a person who's managing the success of that project that I'm sure they could reach out to if they needed to ask a quick question. And there's every now and then we'll we'll reach out to them and say, hey, could you take me off these emails or these calendar events? Because we still get included on those. But that's typically how we'll how we'll wrap it up. So we recently completed a project with ThoughtBot, which I've talked about on the Ruby on Rails podcast before. And it was a really great experience. We unveiled a new version of our Select Your Own Seat across the different theaters. When we finished the final last theater, we went into our ThoughtBot shared Slack channel and we let them know the good news that we had finally moved to the, the new version across all of our venues. And then we promptly closed out the channel. It, it just felt like a really good hooray and goodbye. And so I, I was a big fan of that send off. Perfect. Yeah, that's a good way where it feels like there's a good closure to the end of the engagement. And then who knows if we're lucky enough, we'll get to work with you again or someone else that we've worked with in the past. I know I've worked with uh, one particular client where I've had three rotations with them. And that's a lot of fun because I feel like I get to see them and then get to check back in with them a couple months later. So that's been a lot of fun to do. Very cool. Well, I'm about seven weeks out from RubyConf. So now is my hardcore time of putting together my slides. Typically, the way I approach these uh, decks, I like to look at the overall concepts. When I submit a conference talk, I usually send an outline ahead of time. So I'm usually set on the actual content ahead, which is good because if the conference talk gets accepted, then I'm good to go. Now, there are situations where the conference talk doesn't get accepted. I still have written out that outline. And if I decide it's a good talk, then I might submit it to other conferences. But in this case, I like to take the deck I look at all the concepts. I create big, splashy images for those overall concepts and create those slides first. Then I write out the text for each slide. I then rehearse it. And this is my own unique twist on how I get ready for a conference talk. I then go for a run and try to think of the conference talk as I'm running. You would not believe how many slides and topics I've changed because when I'm running, I just get more creative. I don't know how you feel about that, but um, how do you typically approach something like that? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, it falls into the category of you should go for a walk so that way you can turn off your more analytical side of your brain and then have the more creative side surface. So yeah, I totally understand how that would help. Why we have our aha moments when we're doing something away from our computers because we're focused on something else so that creative space has more room to bubble up and talk to us. I love that though. Go for a run because it also gets some of the adrenaline up and you have endorphins. So I imagine there's a lot of like positive thoughts that also come with it and helps remove some of the stress or I imagine what would be stress around getting ready for a talk and any nerves that accompany that. Now, one interesting thing about talks, I always like to have a couple cheesy jokes in there just to kind of break the ice, make me feel at ease. One dangerous part, though, is if you don't rehearse it in front of other people, you forget that you're going to get a laugh from those jokes. 
assuming that they're good. <laughs> and so I always recommend make sure you have a fresh audience listen to your talk right before you give it. So that way you can account for the time that it's going to take for the audience to either A, get the joke or B, really have a good laugh over it because it can kind of throw off your cadence if you're not expecting a big reaction. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> I would not have thought of that. I do remember reading about someone else who was talking about some advice for giving a talk and how they prepare. And I wouldn't say I necessarily recommend their approach, but it worked for them where they would drink a large cup of coffee or two cups of coffee before they were about to give their talk to just an internal team or group of friends. But they wanted to simulate the adrenaline that they are going to have once they get up on that stage. So that way they are comfortable with it. They know it's coming and they can still talk through it. Sounds like an interesting approach. Be careful with your heart. But <laughs> maybe going for a run. Yeah, I am absolutely going to steal that. That's fantastic. I guess it depends on the type of coffee, but I, I really like that idea as well. Now, one thing that always amazes me is there are speakers who will wait to see what the schedule of the conference looks like. So say it's a three-day conference. If they're on day three, I know there are speakers who show up at the conference and they start writing their talk on day one. I am absolutely a planner. I have to have my stuff done. Otherwise, I will just have constant anxiety until I know everything's buttoned and sealed. Are you a planner? I am. Yeah, I'm impressed that someone could show up that close to their talk. I feel like that's just a sign of experience. They are pretty comfortable with what they're going to talk about. They just haven't written it down yet. But yeah, I'm certainly more like you where I'm going to need to plan it. I'm going to need to practice it and have it all lined up for me. So changing just a little bit, I think you have a pretty interesting origin story about how you became the host of the Ruby on Rails podcast. Can we dive into that a bit? So I have been a developer for about five years. Podcasts have been a big part of my education. I was going through a coding boot camp in San Francisco, and I would have long walks to the train and I would listen to podcasts. And what would happen is I didn't understand most of the podcasts as I started. But as I trained more and got more deep into the code, people started to make sense to me. And it just really became this network of learning that I had available to me. So I'm always grateful for podcasts for that. I was a listener of the Ruby on Rails podcast very early on. The Ruby on Rails podcast has been going on for at least 10 years. It has changed through several different hosts. At one point, Kyle Daigle, who is an engineering manager at GitHub, he was the host of the show. And he at one point put a call out. He had two male co-hosts and he said, I'm looking for more co-hosts, people that will come onto the show and talk about Rails, get excited about Rails, bring interesting content. And I thought to myself, this sounds absolutely terrifying, which probably means that I should do it. <laughs> so I reached out to Kyle and said, hey, here's my background. I would be eager to come on the show. I see this as a learning experience. And he brought me on. And so we were on the show a couple episodes together. And at one point, as GitHub was going through the acquisition with Microsoft, Kyle was no longer able to put out new episodes. So I reached out to him and said, hey, Kyle, if you would be interested, I would love to take over as the host. I have a lot of ideas and things that I want to bring to the podcast. And he agreed to it. And so we're about 35 episodes deep on it. I publish podcasts at least once a week. And it's been great. It's been a vehicle of being able to reach out to my coding heroes and ask them to be on the show. Some people that I just admire so much, like Eileen, you should tell Scott Hanselman have just been incredible episodes. And I'm really grateful to have it. 
I really admire your tenacity and bravery where you recognize because you're terrified of doing something, you're like, that's the thing I need to do. I know it scares me and it's the right thing for me to challenge myself with that. That's really awesome. I think one of my highlights of being the podcast host, as I mentioned, I went to RubyConf Malaysia. And as I was getting introduced onto stage, they're like, you know her as the voice of the Ruby on Rails podcast. And I was like, oh my God, people, people know my voice. Like it's just, it is an incredible feeling. And I'm sure people have learned your voice, Steph. And it just, it's so great to meet listeners and to get feedback. I love getting the tweets. I love getting people that approach me and say, hey, I've never been on a podcast before. Can I come on? And, you know, my goal is to half of my guests to be people that are famous in the community, but then the other half of my guests, I want to bring people on who we've never heard their voice before. And so it's been a lot of fun. And I, I'm hoping that people are learning ideas and values from people that they would never have gotten to listen to before. Absolutely. Yeah. I love the variety of guests that you have on your show. Very much what you just said, where you have heavy hitters, names that I've heard of that are coming on to talk and it's great to hear them. But I also love having people that aren't necessarily as known public figures also sharing their experience. It's a wonderful platform to be able to have to help people elevate their voice and share their knowledge with the world. So thank you for running such a great podcast. Thank you as well. And you had mentioned, I'm going to hint at this a little bit because I thought it was super interesting. When we were chatting a bit offline, there's something technically challenging that you ran into recently in regards to running tests. I'd love to uh, talk a bit about that. Absolutely. So um, if you want to get caught up on all of my computer dramas, uh, we can link to the Scott Hanselman uh, Ruby on Rails podcast. But recently I transferred from a Mac to a Windows machine. I'm one of the few people at work that had a Mac. It failed out on me, unfortunately. And I decided I was going to give Windows a try. And so it's been interesting using Windows 10. I've been using Bash for Windows and getting everything set up on Ubuntu. Sorry, I have to pause you because I'm super curious. Why did you transition from a Mac to a Windows? The organization that I work with has about 100 employees. There were only two employees on a Mac machine, and that was because we have two developers on staff. I've had trouble with my Mac and recently failed out. Not only did the SSD fail, but another component of the machine failed as well. We had a spare Windows machine and I just thought to myself, I think this will be good for me as a developer to see if I can get a development environment spun up and comfortable on Ruby on Rails. What was really lucky is that Scott Hanselman that week wrote an article called Ruby on Rails on Windows is Possible and it can actually be fabulous. And I, I took that as a sign. I think I can do this. And so I ended up spinning up that Windows machine, getting onboarded onto Ubuntu, and then going through a series of steps to be able to get my Ruby on Rails environment set up. It's been really great because I'm now part of the organization where they can send me patches and updates. I'm no longer that odd bird wherever they need to make a change. You know, it's been always difficult on being on a Mac. And so I think it's it's good for me. My personal laptop is still a Mac and now my work machine is Windows. And trust me, Steph, it has been a challenge with learning hotkeys and keeping all those synced up. But I think it's good for me to be a well-rounded developer because I'd like to get involved with things like RailsBridge, where you do have uh, new developers come in with Windows machines. So I like to be helpful in that regard. 
Yeah, you're just making me think of that, that that's really awesome that you've had a positive experience, although it still sounds like there's some challenges, mainly with maybe some muscle memory and things that you're used to on your Mac machine. But that's one of the challenges that RailsBridge typically faces, because a lot of folks bring in a Windows machine and getting them up and running is certainly doable. But it, it takes a lot more conscious effort to make sure that they have a smooth onboarding process. Absolutely. So then when it came to running my actual test suite, I was having difficulty with my local installation of MySQL and getting Elasticsearch and everything all set up properly. I knew that I would be able to do it on AWS. So I approached our sysops person and said, hey, I know that AWS has this new feature and it's basically called serverless Aurora. Aurora is their flavor of MySQL. And basically what that means is that on AWS, I have a database that I can use for tests. It's completely serverless. So what that means is that the database will automatically start up, shut down, and scale capacity up and down based on my needs. So when I'm not running my tests, the database is asleep and I'm not paying for it. So I feel very fancy (laughs) that I'm using a serverless technology in order to run my tests. That does feel very fancy, very hip of you to already be in the serverless architecture world. I can't help every time I say the word like serverless. I want to put it in air quotes just because it's there's there's a server out there in use somewhere. But to other people, it may feel serverless in the sense that there's far less maintenance. I do love that idea, the fact that you don't have a server that is sitting around accruing cost, waiting for requests to come in. But as you mentioned, it's going to spin up and it's only going to bill you for the time that it's actually in use. So how did that go in connecting to that remote database? And you said you're using it specifically for your testing environment? Correct. Yeah. So getting that all connected was fine because we use about 29 different AWS services uh, for the website. And so that is all within the same uh, virtual private cloud. And so the permissions were easy. Now, the issue with using a serverless database for my test suite is now I'm dependent on having an internet connection. I have put a ton of work into recording VCR cassette tapes so that I don't need my third-party API services. So I was able to run my test suite without an internet connection before, but now I'm tied to being able to have an internet connection to meet that remote database. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking that would be a downside of having it remote. Is that way you need access to internet to be able to run your test suite? Do you think you'll continue using this? Was this a fun adventure and then you'll still get it up and running locally on your machine or what's next for you? That's a great question. It's a challenge for me to get the database running on my local machine. So I'm definitely still going to go after that. It was kind of a little bit of a check mark on my scorecard as to whether or not I could get this running. And I'm headed to um, AWS reInvent, which is their big conference in November. And so it'll be fun to be able to know that I've used this technology and to see what new things are going to be introduced to it. Very cool. You might be the perfect person for me to run this by because I ran into an interesting issue on a client recently. It's something that I hadn't encountered in the wild, and it was related to Postgres sending up an error that was saying, sorry, that we'd reached too many clients and we weren't able to connect to the database anymore. And when I saw that error, I immediately thought, hmm, I'm not actually sure what to do in this situation since I haven't encountered this before. But I had a fun conversation with the client and also some of my colleagues around how does one think about how many connections we have to the database? How do we calculate how many we think we need? So what's your experience in this realm? I think you used to work for a company that specifically helped people manage their database. Is that true? 
Yes, you have an excellent memory, Steph. <laughs> um, my first technical job was working at a hosting company that was specifically built for Ruby on Rails. So it was a bit terrifying in the fact that I would be live chatting with customers who had deployed Ruby on Rails applications to our hosting platform, were running into issues, and needed my help. At that point, code was relatively new to me, and so I was signing into their servers looking through logs, looking at their database connections, and trying to come up with recommendations. Finding memory leaks and things, or even just bugs in their own code, was just a really interesting trial and helped me become a better developer. Now, we definitely had this problem um, happen several times while I was at that company, because as you know, Active Record limits the total number of connections per application through a database pool number. And so being able to come up with that number is definitely tricky. So what was happening with my customers is that they would be looking for a specific entry in their database and was creating multiple pool connections without closing them. And because they weren't closing them, then the database would get overwhelmed with all the connections that were happening with the application. Mm. And typically what that ended up being an issue with was that there was an error in the application code that connections weren't being closed properly or there was a memory leak. We had an issue at one point where the new Relic gem was creating massive um, memory leaks that they ended up patching, but it was creating a ton of database pool connections. Oh, interesting. Now, in determining whether or not you need to increase that database pool connection, what we typically will do in our current production database is that we'll do load testing. Have you ever done load testing before? I haven't. So what that does, and we had a massive on sale last year with Hamilton, so we did a lot of load testing to determine whether or not our database was going to be able to handle the connections. What that involves is basically writing a script of what a typical user will do on your site. So in our case, going to our site, picking tickets, checking out, and then looking at their order confirmation. What we do is we spin up a test environment and we run that script, but instead of running it for maybe 100 users, we'll run it for 10,000 users hitting the database all at once. And then we start reading the logs to see if we're getting an error on having too many connections to the database. And in that case, then we start tuning the database so that we're able to meet those needs. Very cool. And so if you start seeing some of those errors, do you immediately reach for increasing the number of connections that are cached in that pool so it's easy access to reach the database? Or would you go to Postgres or the database itself and increase the max connections? Oh, good question. It would depend on which one I had last tuned. So if I feel that I'm really pushing Postgres to the edge of its limits, then I would be tempted not to do it there. I would look at the application first. We've had issues with our sidekick pools and making sure that we're utilizing that enough. We realized at one point that Sidekick was really chugging along and not needing as much connections as we were giving it. And so we tuned those down. So really taking a look and looking at the community recommendations on how many connections you should be doing. So what did you end up doing with your client? So I think what we did is we also went to Sidekick and we scaled back some of the workers that we had running because we had a lot going at that moment. So that helped right away with resolving the error where too many connections were trying to be made to the database. And then we also increased the max connections. I think we went up to something like 350, which there's no particular math or reasoning behind that exact number. But I am curious. I don't know what the max would be for max connections, what Postgres would recommend recommend how high you go, because I know there's a fine balance that you want to keep between how many possible connections you have for each thread in that connection pool versus how many total your database can handle. 
Do you have any thoughts on that? I don't have that number offhand. One interesting thing that happened when I joined the trust is that they are absolutely my sequel. And so I haven't gotten to use Postgres as much as I would like. Uh, it's been a while. We have a parking application that uses Postgres, but I, I'm sure Postgres has significantly improved since I was in the hosting game. Cool. Yeah, it was an interesting space just to gain more clarity since I've always known that Rails and Active Record will use that connection pool, but I didn't realize that one of the reasons we have a connection pool is because it's pretty expensive to open a new connection to the database. So it essentially will have all of these connections on standby. So then anytime Active Record needs to make a query, then it's right there for it to grab. So it speeds up that interaction. So it's, it was a pretty neat error to run into and then work through with a team to resolve. I depend on Nate Berkopek. If you're familiar with him and his work, uh, he has a consultancy called Speed Shop, and he basically obsesses over things like this. He sends out a weekly newsletter, and I absolutely love how nitty gritty he gets into the performance metrics and the little tweaks that you could be making in your application to be able to serve that many more users. He's brilliant. Oh, excellent. Yeah, I'll be sure to look that up because I'd love to dive further into this space just because I've been fortunate where I usually get to focus on my application code and business logic. And it's fun to dive more into the actual mechanics and DevOps part of the world where we also need to consider how much load we're putting on the database and application. For sure. So that's one of the things I ran into recently. Have you run into any technical challenges? I know testing and moving to Windows is already a pretty big one. <laughs> <laughs> One technical challenge that we're working on the trust is currently when you purchase tickets, you're either able to have them mailed to you, we can have them waiting for you at the box office, or you're able to print them out at home to be able to bring them and have them scanned. What we're moving to is digital mobile ticket delivery, which means that people would be able to add their tickets to either Google Wallet or to Apple Wallet. The interesting part of this is that we're now taking this ticket and creating a self-sustaining object that is then being added to your wallet. I, as a developer, have lost the connection to that ticket. And so if I need to update the ticket, then I have to do something special to be able to pull that object out of your wallet, update it, and then re-add it back into your wallet. What's interesting, too, is that I kind of figured that the Google Pay and Apple Wallet were going to operate pretty similarly. And the experience of adding those into our website have been completely different. I was shocked to see um, how little documentation Google has around doing this. And so it was a lot of time on GitHub looking at other people's code to determine how to add it into a Rails application. And on the other side, Apple is completely hands-off with creating those passes. And so it is entirely up to you to use their signing certificate to be able to create those passes and store them on your side, on your server. Have you had any experience with working with either? I haven't. I have tons of questions because this is something I haven't done before, a feature I've implemented. So does your team have a native mobile app that you're adding this to, or is this all from the website that you're sending the digital passes? How does that work? That's such a good question and something that we get asked all the time. It is entirely the website. We have considered wrapping it into some sort of wrapper so that we do have mobile applications. But as a team with only two developers, the idea of being able to maintain a native application for the website just has never been a priority for us. But we do get that as a question quite often. So this would be like our first really deep dive into doing something that is very mobile specific. Interesting. And I think I've heard that there's a way. So when you're sending that pass to the user so they can add it to their wallet, are you sending that via email? How is that reaching the user? 
Good question. So with Passbook, the way it works is you generate the object. So it's from the actual order confirmation page. We've decided not to email it at this point, but we might eventually do that. So when they land on that order confirmation page or their order history page, they'll click on a button and it downloads a zip file. You open the zip file and then you add it into your wallet. So the Apple experience is it's not great. I don't love it. Google, on the other hand, when you add to your Google wallet, you send an API request from the front end using the back end JSON format to be able to generate the pass and add it into Google wallet on the fly. There's no creating the object and saving it anywhere as opposed with Apple. So Google, I feel, is just a better experience overall, which I was surprised with because I feel like Apple wallet's been around for much longer. Yeah, that would have surprised me as well. So you'd mentioned once you send that ticket off to them, you no longer have access to that ticket. Do you have to go through like a verification process with Google, with Apple to be able to send these type of tickets? Or is that something that they just don't mind? So with Google, we need to have API keys to be able to make that secure request. What's kind of cool is that you see that save to Google pay button on your site. That button won't even render if you don't have the correct API keys, which I think is is nice. Now with Apple Wallet, you have to have a certificate saved into your repository that gets passed through as you're generating those objects. One interesting thing that Ticketmaster is doing is they're using blockchain technology. So every hour, they actually reach out to those objects and update the barcode. So how that would work is that if you're a ticket reseller, you buy a ticket and then you try to send it to someone else. Well, because it auto generates every hour, by the time that person takes that ticket to the venue, it would no longer be valid because the barcode had changed so many times since then. Oh, wow. So it will update that individual's ticket. But yeah, if you forwarded it to them, they're no longer getting those updates. That's an ingenious way to prevent folks from reselling their ticket and sharing it with someone else. That's good to know. Absolutely. The funny result of that is that my boss came to me and said, we need to get on the blockchain. So <laughs> so those are the kinds of things I have to look forward to coming up. You're just going to be so hip and cool. You're going to be on the blockchain. You've also got serverless architecture. You just have all the fun toys. All the fun toys. And people would be amazed to know that I work at a nonprofit. So <laughs> I do get to do a lot of cool things. Very cool. Well, so with that, I think we should wrap up. Brittany, thank you again for joining us. Where can folks follow along and keep up with your adventures? You can find me at the 5x5 Ruby on Rails podcast. So that will be linked in the show notes. I'm on Twitter as Britt, B-R-I-T-T-J Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Steph. Thank you so much. And we'll be sure to include links to everything you just listed in the show notes. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. The Bike Shed is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore Bike Shed or reach me at svicari on Twitter or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed and we'll see you next week. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.